Now, this is what Max is saying. We're losing time there, and, and now they're in for the undercut situation, aren't they? Ferrari puts on new tyres, and Red Bull, this is where Max needs to be pumping in his best stuff. For the second year running here at Zandvoort, Max Verstappen wins the Dutch Grand Prix! Hello and welcome to another episode of the Undercut Podcast. We are back again and this time it is to review the Dutch Grand Prix. And it's an OG episode this time around because it is just myself and Jesse Billington here this evening. By the time of recording, it might not be evening when you listen to it, but that's just how we roll here on this podcast. So before I ramble off into obscurity, how are you, Jesse? I'm not too bad. Busy day at work, but uh, otherwise all good. I've uh, been watching the 1987 Mizano MotoGP 500cc highlights with Dad because about 35 years ago to the day he was there watching it. And then obviously this weekend I'm also off to Italy to watch some motorsport. So it's funny how it goes around in circles. Like Keeping it in the family very much as close to on brand if we just had that for the preview episode that would be perfect no way around that later. we can put it back in for the preview episode but also it works nicely because this is around the era that Mick Dewan's dad was racing 500cc motorcycles and Mick is currently doing a Formula 2 which is racing both the weekend previously to this which was the Dutch Grand Prix which we're about to review and the weekend coming up in an episode that you're bound to listen to after this which is the Monza preview episode where Formula 2 is also going to be Anyway, we'll do, a, we'll do like a rough playlist on the on the YouTube channel where it's just like Italy related, and you just have to piece it together. Uh, there will be a way of stringing this together. If not, pay no attention to that, and we'll shuffle quickly on to what the hell has happened with the Dutch Grand Prix, which this week is starting off with. I mean, we could have predicted this. This was going to be a topic of conversation. The flares, which proved to be a big issue during qualifying, and to annoy people both on and off track and people watching from large distances away either America and Australia because they all had to deal with the sky coverage of it and you had to put up with Crofty and all of this kind of weird headmaster or attempt at headmaster bashing of everyone trying to be like the world's policeman and it didn't really come across that great. I know the message was one of like it was meant to be a good message but it just uh, it didn't really land, I don't think. Definitely not for the international audiences. It was a bit cringy for me. So, I mean, I know that's not the issue here, but what did you think? The flares themselves were a problem, especially when, for whatever reason, Dutch fans started lobbing them onto the circuit in an attempt to hinder Max Verstappen. I don't get that. That makes no sense to me. I can't understand why you'd do that, especially in an active session. After the race, yeah, once the cooldown laps happen, sure, why not? Make everything orange. Who gives a turkeys? But... Where there's an active race session on? Just stupid. Yeah, don't do not do it. That's not fun. Um, so it's bad enough during the opening lap in Austria when you couldn't see parts of the track when you were the driver, but even then it was kind of... It was interesting, I found, so I, I mentioned Rocky, I'll bring it back under. It's only now that he suddenly decides, oh yes, this is a terrible thing and we should really poo-poo all over it, but come Austria and a few of the other races we've had where there's been a lot of uh, flare action, not so much as a peep out of him or anyone else on that matter. So it's interesting to see when it suddenly becomes an issue and how dead against it you always were, but you never mentioned it before in this first time we're ever hearing of it, despite this not being a new issue. It just, I, I just, it just frustrates me. Things again. Jensen had the right idea. He mentioned it in commentary and like, yeah, it's bad. They stink and not necessary. And that you didn't need to say anything else there because again, it's just like, don't be a dick. End of story. You don't really need to keep harping on about it and then just, again, making out like you're suddenly everyone's weird dad. It, I think this is far more of an annoying Croftyism than it is anything else when it comes to the commentary and the coverage of the flare problem. The flares themselves, problem with the whole, don't do it, don't be stupid, that's easy hmm. enough. But again, that's but, all you need to say there. Yeah. Everyone's pretty much clever enough to understand that without you going like all, uh, I forget the word now, um, not patriotic. Didactic, didactic something along those lines. Patronising. Patronising, that's the word. Yeah, it came across very much that. But then they, I would have, yeah, perhaps cut to a shot of the entry gates where they have the sign saying no road flares or no smoke mm. flares or whatever it is, bag checks in progress, yada yada yada. Show it, tell it, leave it alone. But Crofty seems to have this really annoying thing he does with his commentary where he'll pick up on a point and then won't drop it. Everyone else, mention it. While it's funny, while it's relevant, use it, great, move on. 
and this is potentially it was something we're seeing more and more of with Crofty's commentary is inability to find the next thing to start talking about, and it's sort of you never drags. Seem to have that problem with with Brundle, either Brundle, Jake's, or amusingly Jensen Button, who is quite new to that whole commentary thing, but seems quite a natural at it. But and all... just kind of flows, lets it dip down when there's not much to say, he won't say anything, or just make a little comment, or go into the driver's perspective, he won't just keep doing a Nico Rosberg and telling you how many times he used to fight Lewis Hamilton, and it's the point that, oh, did you race Lewis Hamilton? Well, I never knew that. Yeah, I, but all, all, crucially, Ted Kravitz, who is a goldmine of actual commentary. Bear in mind, he used to mm. do like the TV direction and the editing and producing of it when it was ITV, back in when it, when it was um, Murray Walker and the ITV days. Yeah. Ted's been around Formula One as a pundit, as a producer, as a sports commentator, as someone who puts together a TV package for far longer than many people realise. And it's annoying to see Sky only really give him just a little bit here and there, and occasionally his notebook. Perhaps that's all he wants, and in which case, fair enough. But, but. if he were to be given that bigger position, if they were to boot Crofty out tomorrow, as much as I'd like Crofty to see... Crofty and Brundle would be a heck of a team of commentary. Yeah. It would be that, yeah. I think it would be that almost that sort of Murray Walker, James, James Hunt style. Yeah, excitement for the race that never seems to go away, and that would just be Ted immediately. And it seems to be something that Crofty's lost a bit over the last year in particular. And it's it's a shame because he, I mean, I can't really remember when he first started because it seems so long ago now. But he just doesn't seem to have that same kind of enthusiasm for it, and just seems to be there for a job and seems to just give me across this is his thing and no one can go on to it he kind of even with Ted a couple of times it came across as a bit you probably don't mean anything bad by it but it just seems a bit of a seems to be a bit of a dick there were points where Ted almost seemed to get kind of snippy with David Croft and Which Ted doesn't do that no <laughs> you have to have done something really quite bad to annoy Ted yeah, so, I don't know, perhaps it's something that Sky needs to look at changing with their ongoing coverage, because they seem to have a billion-year contract with Formula 1 to do it. So, anyway, that's a rather moot point with regards to the rest of the race, the whole commentary thing, that's that's more... But yes, yeah, basically, underlying method, underlying method, underlying message, flare's bad, don't do it until after the race, do what the Italians do and just have a giant flag instead. Yeah. I, I'm going to be there. I, I want to find someone with a big flag and wave the big flag after the You're going to take a big flag. We're going to make one between now and the weekend. I don't... I'm flying on Thursday evening. I don't have a lot of time and I'm in the office tomorrow and Wednesday, so... Ugh. Well, that's not my problem, so you've got to get onto that. Uh, we're not sure what flag to take either. Um, do we take an Italian flag and hope that it's a you Ferrari flag? take a Ferrari win? flag. And a Ferrari flag? You'll blend in at least, regardless of what happens. And you can There's hide a... underneath it when it all goes terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah, true. Use it to hide our shame. Um, but anyway, that's that's a moot point. We'll get on to talking about Italy in the next episode. Uh, we'll stick with Zanvoort's and Max Verstappen's fourth pole position of the season, which doesn't seem like a lot, given how dominant he's been. Just kind of annoyingly referred back to what we were just talking about with regards to Italy and Ferrari and just showing that it's only his fourth pole position and yet he's leading the championship by about a billion points. Yeah, he's just showing that he doesn't need to be on pole to win and dominate. He's just doing it for fun now. Yeah, I think that you make the point there. He doesn't need to be on pole to dominate. This man can race other drivers and still go on to dominate a race. He can start from off pole position, as we've seen with Hungary and Spa back to back, coming from down in the depths of the field to win the race or score big points. He can do that. And again, that's one of the things that you see from the GOATs, the all-time legends, the what guys that go on to accrue world championships, is their ability to fight through. And yeah, great to see him have a fourth pole position of the season. Amazing that he's done so much with only four pole positions. Bit odd that Perez... He's done a lot with the other seven pole positions that Charles has, though, so maybe we're balancing it out slightly. <laughs> yeah, he does have the strange record, or Charles has the strange record of uh, Max having more wins from Charles' poles than vice versa. But anyway, yeah, Perez had an interesting uh, strategy move to uh, ensure that Max Verstappen podium... So everyone's giving pole? Yuki and his, his strategists grief over the race, but everyone seems to forget about Perez on Saturday dropping it so I'm most unlikely of corners to be able to drop it on. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, time to doff your tinfoil caps because uh, it's it's going to be one of those episodes where we, we have to discuss some interesting issues that have been brought up by people that don't... Have nothing better to do. Yeah, 
don't don't particularly watch a lot of Formula One and just see one thing happen and go, well, that's impossible. And then everyone goes, no, it's probably just Perez. Well, like, I, I had heard it wasn't Perez in that car. It was actually Latifi, but they managed to swap it out before you could notice. So. Well, actually, I heard it was Bruno Senna. That would make a lot more sense. Like, it's, there's a lot. There's a lot said about Bruno. sneaky like that. That's a niche reference. If you're listening to Bruno, then uh, we're on to you. That is a niche reference and something that we'll likely mention again with uh, Crashgate. But anyway, yeah, um, Max Verstappen pole position, Perez somehow dropping it on the banking. I think it possibly just error. The track was being a bit of a nightmare to drive around, quite sandy, despite how many feeder series. Uh, happened to Daniel Ricciardo with, with the dirt on the track and how much that buggered up his lap. So if there was something there related, it was a similar part of the track. There's something a little bit later on, maybe a little bit more dirt or dust or whatever that was there that was in the wrong place that hadn't been there in previous laps then you don't need much I mean you see what was it Lance Stroll in Jello in 2020 it didn't seem to be an awful lot there it's just the smallest of things and off into the barriers you go so yeah I mean it doesn't take much not long after that turn in Formula 2 in the was it feature or sprint race we saw that feature. big pile up where again, possibly also Magello-esque. Magello-esque again, but also partly due to the front of the grid backing everyone up, but also pe- drivers trying to set off on what was likely a sandy and loose surface all of a sudden with a bit of sand accumulation under the safety car. Track condition very fast deteriorates in Zandvoort as much as it improves, and it wouldn't have taken a lot for a car to become upset. So, as much as it's easy and fun to poke fun at. Uh, Perez for dropping it and securing Max that pole position. It's uh, quite easily explained. As are another point we'll get to. Uh, we'll touch on Ferrari quickly, who seem to be fighting their inner demons to do something, and according to the notes, not it all weekend long. A lot of pit lane chaos from them uh, that in the end hamper signs. I think this is a note from you, Timo. I was about to accuse you of that because I don't remember writing that. <laughs> In that case, it is uh, from the missing third member of the podcast. It does sound like very much an Ellie Mae piece, to be fair. Um, she got a race. She got a race ban, by the way, listeners, for being mean last week. So she's not here for these two episodes. So she's going to sit in the naughty corner and learn that things have consequences. Yeah, we've got Roberto so Mary in her place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but yeah, Ferrari, they had a uh, tumultuous weekend, I think is the fairest way to put it. There were glimmers of it good. Was, I mean, you could describe it with comparison to other races they've had this season as not shit, but at the same time, there were definitely questionable elements to it, such as the pit stop, such as the inevitable strategy as always, and offering the clerk fourth when he's in second and hoping he's going to be happy with it and somehow Charles not saying in public at least yet that this championship is over and it's tricky it's like yeah it's tricky it's nigh on near mathematical impossibility if things keep going as they are Carlos Sainz seems to have realized that Ferrari are making mistakes and maybe we should learn from this but nothing is actually happening and Matty Bonato even saying after the race that he's not concerned about the strategy he's not concerned about the, the pit stop with signs he thinks everything like it's just one of those things was like yes it may be one of those things but when it's the basics like not having all four tyres for the car like that's not a new thing it's not been three wheelers like Robin Reliant F1 cars as much as that being an amusing thing to watch anytime soon like it's not that's not a new thing They've always needed four tyres, maybe even six, but we're still not... Even then, you still don't have enough tyres with three. Yeah, you're going to so get a very lopsided your, your Ferrari, you've there. been there since the beginning. You know that you're going to need quick calls between when the car is calling for this and the people in the garage being ready to put those tyres on. And I don't really know what the excuse is there. I like think... You, can't just, you don't just forget... Well, in the early practice sessions, I think usually FP one or at least FP by FP two, you want it down pat. You do essentially pit stop runs. Usually in FP one, FP two, you reserve for your race prep, your longer running, where you're not doing as many pit stops. FP one, where you're in and out of the pits a lot more. What you do is you basically say, box box, and then start a stopwatch and see roughly how long it takes from the point you say box box for your driver to arrive in his pit box, and then you reverse engineer essentially how long it's going to take. You know how long it's going to take for your pit engineers to run with tyres to their allocated standing spots ready and you match up exactly how late around the circuit you you can say box box to a driver and they appear in the box with everything in place and Ferrari must have done that 
and then either been surprised by science's pace coming in or just fumbled at getting it ready, in which case they didn't play it cautious enough with where they set their box, li- their sort of pit limiter, as in to say, again, this is the latest point. kind of expect of rich energy racing from one team rather than Ferrari. Yeah, you expect this from a new team, and Ferrari do have a relatively new group of people in their pit crews. They, they've sort of refreshed their lineup behind the scenes a bit, and this it's is working one of the, wonders. It's working wonders because was it Nico Rosberg that levelled at them that said this is a sort of Formula Two, Formula Three You're saying level. That the Formula Two and Formula Three do better pit stops than better Ferrari pit stops and strategy. Yeah, and he's not wrong. He's not wrong. I don't. It's a it's a weird time to be alive in F one where you're agreeing with Nico Rosberg on things like this. Yeah. Just... But Ferrari did make rookie errors with that, and again, it's one of the things that they should know how to do it. It's a regular part of setting up for a race weekend. Yet for some reason, this weekend, they got that wrong, and they paid dividends for it. And then Sergio Perez ran over one of their wheel guns, and sort of fully bunny hopped his car going over this wheel gun, which says a lot for how stiff the cars are set up, but also. It was quite a bounce, though, if you watch that in slow motion. It was quite a bounce, and Perez is... Because it's also a narrow pit lane. Perez is lucky he didn't bounce and clip, essentially... You said it's a very narrow pit lane. Yeah, he's Um, lucky he didn't clip, essentially, the um, control balls mm. and basically wipe himself out or break a front wing, because then he couldn't go back into his pit box. He'd have to drive out of the pits, round a lap, and then come back in again to repair whatever damage he does crashing into a Ferrari wheel gun. Which amusingly would have kind of been a mirror image of Yuki Tsunoda a few laps later. Yes, which does lead neatly on to our next point, actually. Yuki and the mystery of the loose wheel, as I think I titled this point. Um, In the end, it was a differential failure that saw him retire. But, so I've had to do a lot of reading, a lot of digging on this, a lot of listening back to radios and watching footage back. So, Yuki comes out of his pit stop, feels something isn't right, and... A differential keeps the, the rear end of the car nice and tight, keeps everything pulled together. Chances are it wasn't the differential that was going, it would have been like a C-ring that's holding the axle shafts in the back of the car. But if one of those fails and starts pulling on the differential, that will feel like a wheel is coming loose, because essentially you've got a wheel moving away from the car in a direction it's not supposed to be moving. He would have said, wheel not fitted, wheel not fitted, which is a major problem on a Formula 1 circuit if you feel that you have to stop. We saw that with uh, Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen in Australia 2018, 19. Um, it was 2019 because it was the Haas era, and... Um, you immediately have to stop at the side of the road. And the team would have looked back at the data from their wheel guns. They feedback data so you can see the tightening and they would have said, no, all of them tightened fine. But the problem is at this point, Yuki thought, uh, I'm done. I can't drive any further on the circuit with a loose wheel. That is unsafe. I Someone gets fined. We lose points. Don't want to do that. So he would have unloosened his belts and gone to get out of the car. But just as he's doing that, the team goes, wheels are fine. Box, box. We'll do the wheels again. So he then has to do a Charles Leclerc Barcelona 2020 and drive half a lap of the track with his belts partially undone back to his pit box where they then put on the same compound of tyres but again just to make sure there's no problems and make sure they're all tight and then his, obviously his engineers tighten up his belts and they think okay problem solved and send him out again. On his way out, he's like, no problem, still there. By this point, they're like, okay, it's not wheels. They then likely notice something else come up on the data as differential rear axle problem, something along those lines. There's either a drop in pressure, there's a drop in traction, power's moving weirdly across the diff, because you can adjust your diff locking on your steering wheel. So they obviously have sensors and feedback from that section of the car. They will then notice errant feedback coming from it and go, no, something mechanical's wrong, park it up, get out, your race is done. So that's why it's weird that he came in, obviously didn't cause a safety car the first time round, so they brought him in and then waited an ideal amount of time to send him out again and say, do it again and do it properly, we need a safety car. Which, it's obvious, easy to jump to that conclusion, but when you start pulling it apart and add in the actual facts of what happened and the mechanics of why you would miss one problem and mistake it for another, there's there's the answer. I do find the, the one bit I do find most interesting or two bits actually was when you were watching back the original pit stop again you've got to really slow it down to see it but the front left that you were saying was where the issue was it doesn't look like the wheel gun actually does touch the tire which I'm sure it must have done because of the issue being the but it just 
it was done so quickly you barely see it, so that it could be very easy to see that maybe they just somehow forgot that. I mean, we saw a lot of random stuff with pit stops this year, especially this race. So it wasn't too conceivable. And well, especially really, this weekend. Really focus. Yeah. Very really focused to, to spot it there. Um, and then the seatbelts, like you say, it's interesting that nothing more has come from that from the stewards and the FIA because it was... It seemed to me and a lot of others that he had started undoing them to get out of the car because he thought he was going to just finish the race there. And then they obviously tightened them back up when he came back in and then denied profusely afterwards that he'd actually loosened them. It was like, oh no, they just came apart themselves, which A, you're lying and you should be reprimanded a little bit for that because it's dangerous. Or B, they came loose by themselves, dangerous. Yeah. You need to investigate that thoroughly because that's a weird thing to suddenly happen when it's not happened at all the season as far as I'm aware. So either way is not good there and Yuki's poker face isn't quite there yet. You could tell quite clearly in the two interviews that I saw with him when he was asked about that that he was kind of like a deer in the headlights. Yeah, I mean, in an interview with Claire Cottingham after the race, he said, um, cautiously driving back to the pit lanes after being told to fire up his car, I was like drifting on the straight. He said, I was doing counter-steering along the straight. So that's why it didn't feel like it's normal. And to be counter-steering at that point, that implies it's your back end that's going, and obviously they would have got in and said, "Yeah, load." They would have, it would have proved that there wasn't the wheels that were loose. It was a genuine mechanical failure. It's just unfortunate that the way it manifested itself and the way it was diagnosed saw this weird sort of two-stop strategy or two-failure strategy that looked like it could have been manufactured by, um, oh, what's her face, the Red Bull strategist Hannah Schmitz, who is receiving a hell of a lot of flack online for this, and unfairly so she has proven a weapons grade strategist this season for red bull everything so she on the got team's... paris to win a race i mean that needs quality strategy yeah because yes. he doesn't seem capable to do it by himself this year no and equally there's been just other elements where they have the red bull team have seemed in a world of their own and again it comes down to this sort of absolutely brilliant car and brilliant design from adrian newey brilliant driving from max verstappen but there is a third element to it the holy trinity that makes it up is yeah this fantastic strategy that she's coming up with and it seems that as soon as everyone jumped on this sort of yuki sonoda not necessarily crash gate but retirement gate hype train they immediately thought this was sort of the the creation from the devil herself anna schmitz and it's it's annoying to see people so willing to throw someone under the bus especially at a time when we're actively trying to encourage women into motorsport into roles obviously driving roles great but also getting women into roles outside of the driving seat into sort of your strategist roles your team principal roles i it's doing a hell of a good job at reversing that good effort that things like w series and extreme e are doing to try and get women into these positions and it's, it it's just annoying for this for this podcast we should really invest in the bullshit button so that we can press any time we need to call it out and just we won't even beat that it's just bullshit because you know that when we say it, it's, it's something serious that it's absolute yeah, yeah. The same. It would have been quite useful when it was the Yuri Vips thing, and I think it would. It falls into that same catch again. It's like we don't want to have to discuss this, but it it warrants discussion because it's it's unacceptable. It's not good. It's not fun. I don't want to see it happen in my sport. She's brilliant at her job. Leave her alone. She had obviously had nothing to do with a team. It's not a Red Bull team. It's not a Red Bull junior team. Alpha Tauri is a direct competitor of Red Bull. They just so happen to use Red Bull powertrains in the same way that Haas uses Ferrari powertrains. They are owned by the same overall company, which is Red Bull Drinks. I was just going to say, direct competitor implies they have a chance of competing with Red Bull when they really don't. In the same they can't way, even compete with the midfield. Yeah, but it's the same way that Haas is a direct competitor of Ferrari, but yeah, they are a customer of the engines. Yeah. Broad strokes. Um, in the way I'm that competing with Usain Bolt in a running race, yes. Yes. Equally. Yeah, but the the fact is, she would have had nothing to do with the Alpha Tauri strategy. Occasionally, you do get sort of teams joke about afterwards, like convenient things happening, and sort of one team principal jokingly buying flowers or a case of beer for another team. That's happened previously, but usually in hindsight, and it's clearly done in jest. It does not happen, especially since the fallout of Crashgate, where a team goes we need you to retire one of your drivers on the circuit in a location that's going to cause a safety car, because in a world where now pit radio is a broadcast, you can't get away with that. I will just say that Singapore's coming up. 
don't <laughs> don't even put that idea and, out on the and, internet. And, and Alonso still with Renault. <sighs> Bye, Ocon. You're retiring. If he retires, calling it now. Gonna Are you going to go change go change your um, predictions well, for prediction, Singapore? I think so. Yeah, Crashgate so. 2.0 or 3.0. I can't remember how many versions of Crashgate we've had so far. It's the, it's the most direct sequel because it's the same team with the same driver. Yeah, that is. If, if Flavio's yeah. a guest, that's going to be even better for me. Yeah. Anyway, we'll move on from um, Yuki Sonoda and the mystery of the loose wheel to possible tension between the team moving forwards with Lewis Hamilton. Um, although this has since been cleared up, I, I think I wrote I this say, off. I think long this is after the race. It best to be honest, because yeah. it's like Alonso last week. You say stuff in the heat at the moment, and it's fair enough because let's face it: if we were in the, their places, we'd be saying a lot worse. Oh, <laughs> I would have called nearly every person on in that pit crew the worst words imaginable, and yeah. I would have immediately apologised when I got out of the car. And again, Toto Wolf said, "Yeah, fair enough. We didn't make the right calls, and in the heat at the moment, you say stuff." But at the end of it, also Ham- Hamilton was magnanimous about it. He came out But apologized. at the same time, I think that it was still the best result they were going to get because Red Bull did the, their pit kind of perfectly. They didn't need to, but they saw the opportunity annoyingly, a little bit like in Abu Dhabi last year. It did sniff a little bit like that and so close to the end. Well, not as close, admittedly, but yeah, um, it did sniff a bit of that. But the most interesting bit for me, I thought, was that if that had been Bottas in that car and this race and it had been a few and like last year or any period and he'd come on the team radio and said I might change the softs I think the team would have said no whereas yeah. George is like yeah right yeah I think with George they're a bit more forgiving potentially they didn't anticipate him doing what he did or... say, Bottas, Bottas in his first year maybe would have been interesting to see because George definitely he's outperforming Lewis at the yeah. moment in the races at least um, which kind of there's a little bit of luck on the side there, but again, it's still very impressive the record he's managed to have there. Um, and he's only 12 points, 12, 13 points off second place in the championship, so it's not inconceivable he gets that. So, again, maybe it's worth taking the risk there to see what we can get. And I think, as much as it would bet to Lewis if George was the one that got Mercedes win first for them, especially this year, he would get over that pretty quickly because he is such a team player. And again, after the team, after the race, sorry, finished. And he's saying about John Lorenzo to Toto that we need to have a discussion about it. He then switched immediately into professionalism mode and was thanking the mechanics and the racing engineers and all the rest of it for doing such a fantastic job on weekend. And it's like, he may be still quite peeved about it all, but he is not going to just let that rip for everyone to hear. He's professional to not let that happen. Yeah, and it, it's it's easy to make, like like you said, the sort of clickbaity piece of tension between Lewis and the team. But afterwards... Lewis is a Cue this being the title for our episode this week. Yeah, this this will be dropped early on, so people go, "Ooh, listen to this." Um, yeah, Lewis is a professional. He is a seasoned race driver. He, that is a team he is well bedded with, and obviously has a lot of close colleagues in it. He's not going to sort of just leave things to simmer away and sour. He's he's better than that, and as much as I'm not his biggest fan on the track, I'm, I'm because I'm just. Yeah, great driver, but I can appreciate the professionalism of him. And yeah, I'm. I'm always in awe. I, this is one of the things I <laughs> is always trying to explain the fact that I'm not a Lewis Hamilton fan, and then having to try it's, and justify it's, it's, it. I think it's like me with Max. I can respect him as enough as a driver and what he's capable of. But I, per, I'm personally just not the biggest fan of him. But I've got nothing against the guy personally. Yeah. I think that's why it's I said. just you're just not my cup of tea. Yeah, especially also I'm a huge fan of what Lewis does outside of racing as well. I cannot fault him a bit. He's a brilliant human being, but when it comes to Formula One, he's just not my favorite. I think that that it just sounds harsh, and it always, especially when it hits it's the because internet. Because these not a lot of personal opinion. Just yeah, I think that's, that's it. I spend too much time on Formula on Twitter that I'm sort of so <laughs> shy of having a personal opinion that someone's going to absolutely cancel me for not liking Lewis Hamilton. Um, anyway. Um, Talking of people who got cancelled, or at least Bottas his engine cancelled him yet again this week. Yeah, yeah, that's during the race. that works as a link. Uh, third DNF in a row for Bottas. Not yeah. Uh. I was having a look back through some of the drivers to see if I wanted to rejig my fancy team and looking at Bottas for an option because I was thinking Bottas or Joe, and I was like, you know what? I'm not liking Bottas's track record at He had a good start to the season and it's it's scored a lot of points, but uh, the only reason he's still tenth, I think, in the championship is because. 
he did so well early on, but three DNFs in a row now, which, okay, last week was because of Latifi, but at the same time, it's an engine issue, bit of a punt, and again, maybe it wouldn't have made it the whole way through, maybe if it had been a race earlier, it would have puckered out in Spa instead of here. So, not great for, for Valtteri, and you've uh, got a little bit sorry for him, because again, they had that Q3 record of getting into Q3 or getting out of Q1 at least every race from the start of his F1 career with Williams until, what, Hungary, and then two races back-to-back he gets knocked down Q1. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at my F1 fantasy team. He scored me minus nine this week for my BRT Yamaha team, and I'm now thinking, do I swap him for someone? Mm. Uh, yeah, not a brilliant not a brilliant streak for him and some problems that have been brewing away, but... Uh, yeah, it's just unfortunate for him. It doesn't make him a winner, nor does it make him a spinner. But uh, speaking of said topic, it's time for our winners and spinners. And uh, despite the fact that she is not here, she has submitted her winners and spinners anyway put forward to my dears. Although she's not actually given us any sort of justification for them, so we can to an extent. We can do that accordingly. We can rib she's her happy enough with it. and pull them apart, and she won't know until it goes live. Um, we'll start with Timo. We'll start with your good self. Your winner, please. Yeah. I mean, multiple reasons for this, Max Verstappen. I just, again, after FP1 and the gearbox issue, it was not looking ideal for him, and he probably had to fight for it, I feel like, the Dutch Grand Prix victory more than he or any of us watching at all thought he would have to. Um, especially amusing as he started from pole, and you think if it had been 14th or 10th, maybe it would have been easy for us. Uh, we just don't understand yet. Um, but, yeah, pole position, fourth, as we said earlier, then gets the race win and the fastest lap. And extends that championship lead by even more points. It's ridiculous. And on a personal level, he helped me a lot in my fantasy team and in my predictions for this podcast. So, triple win for me on that one. So, big kick. You did have him as your mega driver, so you did earn triple points off of him for fantasy. I did. And this was the, I thought, Zandvoort would be the place to do it. And lo and behold, I was right. It was a good play. I'll give you that. Um, My winner for this weekend has to go to George Russell. Um... Second place, not terrible at all, really. Good first, performance first from him. First time he got second this year. First time he's got second this year. It's yeah, um, yeah, just a just a decent performance from him. And again, sort of outperforming what we're expecting of that Mercedes. And again, when it comes to having the racing now, and watching what's going on around him, calling for that pit stop to get those softs to go to the end on. There's a good little racing driver there, and it's going to be interesting to see how that sort of continues to develop through this season. And when we get a good Mercedes under him. He's really going to be a big threat to, I'm not even going to say Carl, like Charles Leclerc, but certainly to Max Verstappen. I, I think they're beyond Charles Leclerc. So he's, he's already beating Charles Leclerc. So. Yeah, that's my thing. I think he's he's going to be beyond a threat for Charles Leclerc. He is going to be dabbling with Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton when there's a good car. And it's going to be I interesting. Think, I think it's also a reflection of Mercedes this year in that they know they're not winning and they kind of. They said, and granted, didn't go great for them in Spa, but. Well, it did kind of, but um, with, with George there as well, but in the sense that they were saying, yeah, we're just here to cause chaos now, and they really are. They can just, they're not taking the, their foot off the gas, but they're kind of just doing their own thing, and they're not really, their plan is just, let's do the best we can and bugger everyone else as much as we can do with these. Alpine and Clown can't touch us in forward, they can't steal third from us. We can go and get Ferrari. And they're helping us to do that. Um, we might not get first, barring some kind of miracle, but second is still not bad when you think of where they started at the beginning of the year. Yeah, so there's there's certainly a lot of hope left on the table for Mercedes. Move on to Ellie May's predictions, and she's, well, not predictions, her winners at least, and um, she's given us Max Verstappen and Hannah Schmitz. Both points we've actually touched on already, obviously, Max is pretty dominant driving again. Another brilliant weekend of strategy and sort of reacting to things as the circuit changes from Hannah Schmidt. So, yeah, sort of top tier choices. I don't think we can really, we can't really pick those apart, to be fair. Um, might have better luck with her spinners. Although, Timo, we'll go back to you for a spinner first. Yeah, for me, I've got two. I mean, first up, Daniel Ricciardo, but I feel like I want to put more emphasis on McLaren than Ricciardo there because qualifying, I think it was Vettel that bugged him up there with the, the dirt at the end of Q1, which we saw how tight Q1 was on time, so I think the top went all in a second of each other, so honestly I think this could have been a really good weekend for Ricardo, and there was some unfortunate stuff there which could have been made up in the race, 
And you would have thought, starting as far back as what was his 17th, 18th, that McLaren would have the sense to just throw the textbook out slightly and just go for some wild strategy because you've got about as good a chance of that working as anything at that point and you've got nothing to lose. Instead, they pissed him early to go onto the hards and then pissed him surprisingly soon after to go onto another set of the hards, if I'm not mistaken. And then with all the chaos and everything, it just yeah couldn't do anything. And you think with, even with the dog shit of a card that McLaren is, especially for him, it, it, it should have been further ahead and should have been able to overtake a good few people. But instead, just was absolutely nowhere and you just have to think, again, if you get the tin four hats out, as McLaren has decided, yeah, we're just not going to bother helping with Pedro for the season now. We're fully focused on Oscar for next year, and we just we don't care anymore. But surely there's so much they could be getting from Daniel in terms of car development and moving it forwards. He's still, he's not logically going. yes, but not everyone has that. I don't know. Potentially, they might. This might be their way of putting him on gardening leave. If anything, they've bought him out of his contract. They don't want to let him know into too much yeah but still you need to fight Alpine for fourth you'd think at least give him a good strategy in the race even if you lock him out of the sim and you lock him out of the strategy using to the having of Lando for other development of the car you'd still think that you would try one or two things for the race itself um, Mick Schumacher by contrast had kind of the opposite race he had brilliant qualifying P8 um, getting to Q3 which was excellent but then just got hunkered down in traffic straight away on that one and then was just tumbling down the order and again a bit of a bizarre strategy from Haas there and it seemed like again we've waited in for Haas they want to make it easier for themselves to make a decision about his future and so we're just giving him a duff strategy so that he can't score any points for us um, yeah it's I'm sure that's not the case but you it, it just it's very easy to draw that conclusion when you're watching this and thinking about what's going on outside of the racing and it's frustrating in a lot of ways because you don't want to think that because you just want to be able to focus on racing has a pure racing there and Nick we know he's a good driver and the fact that he was get able to get that car up into P8 with Magnussen down in P18 that should be the other way around with all of Magnussen's experience you do wonder how much of it is the car how much of it is the driver and if Nick can do that and he's getting closer like he's had him being more consistently near a Q3 um, with, over, over the course of the season just it's curious how it could all go so so south for him so quickly yeah it's um it's just this there's something that isn't adding up to it. i think potentially with nick the tinfoil hat theory is very tinfoily but yeah the, perhaps it's just has strategies perhaps they just can't do strategies I mean, they might just be bought new, say, Ferrari's getting new people in the background. Maybe they're shuffling them off to Haas. And yeah, the, the, the ones that either. aren't working for Ferrari are going to Haas for some reason. But um, speaking of strategies that don't work, uh, Lewis Hamilton is my spinner this week. It it almost worked. It worked well, but... Yeah, he... Was that like, it was, again, it was the safety car, again, that kind of screwed, screwed the pooch a bit there. Yeah. He must have had war flashbacks to Abu Dhabi last year, just sort of fortunate son starts playing in the background. He hears Huey helicopters and just sort of mm. bad, bad memories to Max Verstappen so pacing against him, just sort of waiting and on softs. You're thinking, oh no. And the fact that Max did what we saw George Russell do in France earlier this season where he hangs back a long way under the safety car so he's got a massive delta that he can make up just as everything goes green puts his foot down comes steaming up to Hamilton has to lift he gets that much of a good run so he can just make sure he's a bit further back coming to the sort of start finish line and then as soon as he's across the start finish line even without DRS he's blasted past the Mercedes and you you've got to feel for Lewis in that instance like thinking oh I should have been on the softs but hey I think it was one of those, it was damned if he did, damned if he didn't. It was, after the second safety car came out, it was kind of, amusingly, Bottas was the one that ruined it for him. So, it just, that's the way they could come for it. I think it's, it's good in some ways how frustrated they all were about it, because they could have won that race, and that's really great progress when you consider they were 1.8 seconds back from the top of the pack in Spa, I mean, last weekend. So, I know it's a bit track-dependent, but that's got to be encouraging. 
Yeah, it does say a lot for Mercedes. When the circuit's right, it's good for them. I wouldn't be surprised if we see them do quite all right in Singapore with, again, a rather tight demanding circuit, especially through that middle sector. So one to keep an eye on still, certainly don't want to count out of things. Uh, we'll move on to quickly Ellie May's spinners. She's gone for Lewis Hamilton, which is probably for similar reasons to the ones I've used. Carlos Sainz, I can understand why. He had a decent qualifying position and then just sort of tumbled through the order, had that terrible pit stop. Again, with Ricardo, though, for me, I blame Ferrari more than the driver there. So it was, yeah. again, Carlos, I think, is coming around to the idea more that it's Ferrari that need to sort their shit out than Charles is at the moment. But yeah. uh, it's amusing that five-second penalty for Charles last week, five-second penalty for Carlos this week, five-second penalty for the both at Monza. Ooh, please don't say that. that Ten seconds that for one of don't, them? No, that would ruin my weekend. I, no, don't. That would ruin my weekend. Um, although I will say Carlos was battling a bit of damage from that early contact with Lewis. So I think Lewis yeah. is... It was the most briefest of kisses and it was not to a valuable bit of the car. He, he is real, it seems Lewis a bit is, excuse to let Carlos off the hook there. Or the Ferrari. Yeah. It's me being a Ferrari apologist, I'll admit. Um, and then, anyway, you gave us three spinners this week, actually. Lewis Hamilton, Carlos Sainz, and Sebastian Vettel. And Seb did have a pretty dire weekend of it. He was blue-flagged out of the way at one point. And uh, rather dramatically, actually, we saw him not blue-flag his way out the way of the people coming through, which is quite exciting because it was just after a pit stop. So we saw them sort of duking it out through turns three, four, through the banking. It was quite exciting, really. It was Alonso versus... Was that Lewis as well? Possibly, yes, I think so. Yeah, so we had some brilliant driving there. And again, one of them just hindered with basically Seb moving out of the way, but one of the other drivers moving to make the overtake and Seb accidentally sort of blocking them. So Does inadvertently make the case for do we need blue flag in Formula 1 or do you just go to overtake them and just... It's your problem. I would like to see a bit less blue flagging because it can really spice stuff up. And uh, yeah, yeah. sprint races just don't get rid of blue flag. There you go. I ooh, would you start laughing people in sprint races? You've got to really have something. No, you just get rid of sprint races because you don't need them to encode more racing. You just automatically yeah, have more in the Grand Prix itself because you're not blue flagging all the time. You can have the teeth you go to wheel to wheel with the step and, and it doesn't really matter if it's the position or not because you can just be a Latifi about it. Which goes great until Latifi starts wiping out race leaders as they come to lack him every just, time. That is how we get Joe and Albon to win races. Or Latifi. That's how Latifi wins in Abu Dhabi this year. God, they trial it out course. like double points at Abu Dhabi in twenty fourteen, like Bernie tried, and we just do it for a one off race. We just see how it goes, and that's how all my predictions for that race come true. We'll leave that there and move on to constructors and drivers countdown. Still in 10th place is Williams, P9 is home to Aston Martin, now 4 shy of P8, Alpha Tauri, Haas are 5 points ahead, still in P7, Alpha Romeo continue their pointless streak since Canada in 6th, in 5th, McLaren break the 100 point mark by 1 point, while in 4th, Alpine open their gap to 24 points, in P3, Mercedes close the gap to the Scuderia, just 30 points between them now, and in P1 with 511 points, in a practically unassailable state, it's Red Bull. Future Alpine driver Nico Hülkenberg still sits in 21st, while in P20 it's Latifi Stroll overtakes Albon for P18, relegating the tie drivers in 19th. Joe Sonoda, Mick Pierre, Danny Rick, Seb, K-Mac and Bottas all stay as they were in 17th through 10th. In P9, Alonso closes the gap to his teammate now with 7 points between the Alpine drivers. Norris extends his P7 lead over Ocon in P8, while in P6, Hamilton closes in on Sainz with just 17 points separating them. George Russell's P2 sees him again overtake the Spaniard with a gap of 13 points, making this the third position swap between them in as many races. After succeeding P2 to Perez, a podium finish in Zandvoort has seen declared draw level with the Mexican both on 201 points in second, though Charles injures it with more wins, while in P1, and now well into the 300 club, Max Verstappen looks untouchable. So Max Verstappen still leads the championship, as does Red Bull with the constructors. But the question is, who is leading when it comes to predictions? Have we seen any changes in the standings? And the answer is yes. Um, you've changed that note there. I'm fairly certain that, or I wrote that rather depressingly on Sunday. I must have written that myself. I think that um, was you. That was me that wrote this. So, um some reason in the third person, Jesse blew it this week, scoring sweet, sweet nothing for a Charles Pole russell win, Charles P2, Norris P3. Leclerc didn't get the fastest lap and Max didn't DNF. Blast. This was you that wrote that. I don't. I did not. Blast. I genuinely didn't. This is Ellie May messing with the script and then not being here to face the consequences of her actions. 
I got She's not learning we're gonna have to ban her for another episode. <laughs> I gotta respect her for that, but yeah, I did score absolutely nothing this week, which um coming after last week, Ellie Mae and I were tied at the front of the grid. Um, That's unfortunate for you, isn't it? Yeah, very unfortunate. Especially while Timo scores a Verstappen triple, safely predicting his pole win and fastest lap. Meanwhile, Ellie May makes it wilder, getting points for the Max win, George P2, Max fastest lap, and an Aston Martin finishing ahead of a McLaren, with actually both Aston Martin drivers finishing ahead of Danny Rick. We didn't give her double points for it, so she does score four points. Timo scores three, I score nil. Uh, the net result is that the... Prediction standings change significantly. Ellie May, 17 points. Uh, and that puts her on an average of 0.944 points per race, which means that she basically every week scores a point, which is quite impressive Not given bad. the track she's, record. She's, we ironically, have. given the driver she doesn't like the most, she's being very George Russell about it all. Yeah. Um, Timo, you're now in second place with 14 points. I'm coming, baby. Uh, I'm in... Th- Third place with thirteen points, and the uh, guest the is... guest that couldn't even score points this weekend because we didn't have one. So really lucky for you. Yeah, uh, had we had a guest, especially had it been a guest of say Fraser Ford's caliber, scoring three points would have really, really seen me out of contention with this <laughs> championship. But uh, is Jesse Billington new Charles Leclerc? Oh, don't say that. Um, I don't want to be jeopardy like that. Anyway, we'll move on. We'll move on from reviewing our predictions to reviewing our fantasy. Hang on, how many points does the guest have? The get oh, the guest in total has eleven. So I'm two points clear Oof. of the guest purely because we didn't have one for this week to predict predictions for. So that's yeah, default, which is yeah. Anyway. We'll... <laughs> Before I accumulate myself more on my own podcast, we'll move on to the Fantasy F1 League review. And, uh, yeah, weirdly enough, Timo's done well here again, actually. So this is it was quite weird trying to write a script for this and praise Timo. So not entirely certain how to do this one. Um, yeah, he came home and won this week's uh, Fantasy F1 League. Uh, 20 points clear of James Baldwin's Rememory team. Uh, on the curbs, pretty much dominated. And like we've already mentioned, he had a Verstappen mega driver begging 162 points with just one person. Um, it wasn't a terrible week for my Jaffa Cake Racing team, who tied this week with last week's second place, Dan from my Masters, on 219 points in third. So uh, we'll see if Timo can keep this pace up with his restructured team. He seems sceptical. Overall, Alex H still leads. Tejas closes the gap with three points between them, uh, making a sort of second half of the season dash for the top there. Uh, My Jaffa Cakes are still in third place, um, 21 points shy of a higher podium step with my BRT Yamaha team sitting in fourth. Timo, though, still sits P19 and P20. So Shows how far back I am when I can dominate a weekend and still make no difference to the standings whatsoever. Yeah, P19, P20, but uh, win this week. It's, uh, it's kind of like Alex Albon winning. Was, I was about to say very much Alex Albon points in, Mel- in Melbourne. There. It's, uh, yeah. it's nice, but it's it's not going to change much. It's no overall net change. Although, to be fair, he and Lance Stroll do keep swapping positions at the rate they're accumulating points. Like I think it's he, Stroll and Joe are in their own little battle for a position, which is quite exciting. Uh, we'll move on to or back to uh, what the hell has happened section with some non-race stuff, some interesting little facts and tidbits uh, that we've sort of picked up as the weekend went over. So Max has now overtaken Nicky Lauda for laps led in a career. I don't know how many it is off the top of my head. I should be able to pull it up quickly. Let's see. It's around 1,600 or something, I think. I don't know. Probably. There was a graphic on Instagram for that. She's just Alonso is ahead of him by about uh, at least a hundred or two hundred laps. It's one or the other. I know it's incredibly different, but I can't quite pin down the exact number. Yeah, but either way, Max has now overtaken Nicky Lauda for laps led in a career, which is again quite impressive considering how young Verstappen is and how early this is in his career still, really. Um, Lewis has yet to qualify higher than P four, which is one that's really quite surprising. I. Not for like a trying Perez again in the way there this weekend. I, I think he could have got broken that that record this weekend if it wasn't for wasn't for that. 
Yeah, it really isn't for lack of trying, but it's just that case of you'd assume Hamilton would have got it like a P3 quali at this point or something, but he just, just hasn't, which is impressive. Um, and George breaks his streak of finishing P3, P4, or P5 this season with a P2, so congratulations. He does to continue him. a streak of finishing every race that he's uh, probably uh, finishes. Every time in. he finishes a race... He's in the in top five. Gets to the end of it. He's in the top five. And now he's found a new position within the top five to finish in P2. So. One more to unlock for George. It's going to be interesting to see if he can do that this season. And if so, where? I reckon he will. And you'll hear about it in my predictions for the Singapore Grand Prix. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not that you really need to listen to that now. I've probably given it away. Anyway, that's pretty much all we've got time for in this week's episode. Unless you've got anything else you want to chuck in. No, I mean, just again very difficult to be a Ferrari or a McLaren fan because they just keep buggering up everyone we like. It's it's not even a case of Haas last year where there's an obvious driver we all don't like. And Jesse mournfully getting his two hats out, which are, oh, look at that, Ferrari and McLaren. And, uh, I mean, come back for our Monta preview episode, but I'm going to give you a free preview here, which I think can be a very sad weekend for Jesse. Yeah, possibly it was a damp weekend, but we'll get to that in due course. It's going to rain on next as well. Uh, yeah, about, we'll get to that in about five minutes' time, recording-wise, or about two days, edit-wise, but we'll see. Anyway, um, if that's all we've got time for this week, I've been Jesse Billington, and you can find me on Instagram and on Twitter and at Classic Car Weekly. So uh, look for Jesse on cars on the internet or just on like your newspaper stand in your supermarkets and news agents because I'm there, I write things. And I have been Team Arbus Daily, and I can be found over on Is It Fast, On The Curves, the Nigel Irish podcast, Paddock Soros, and of course Instagram. We should probably also mention Ellie May, so she doesn't feel left out. She can be found on our Instagram page where she writes her key takeaways, which have made a return, actually. There's some out for the Belgian Grand Prix. And uh, she also runs our TikTok account, which reminds me I need to send her footage from Silverstone so she can make a TikTok, because TikToks. So there we go. That's all for our Dutch Grand Prix review. Join us in essentially two days' time for our preview of the Italian Grand Prix. Yeah, there's a ton of pigeons around. Gotcha. <laughs> Never bring pigeons to a Formula One race. Oh my god. <laughs>